Let's turn our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. And we will put in at verse 1, verse 10. Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. As we have been pointing out, the epistle to the Hebrews was addressed to some Jewish Christians who were facing bitter, hostile persecution for their faith in the Lord Jesus. And in that situation of opposition, of intense persecution, they were being ostracized by their fellow men, their fellow Jews, that is, which, among other things, involved excommunication from the temple and its privileges, public ridicule, confiscation of their property, as well as imprisonment. We know this based on chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And on account of such harassment, they were being tempted to not only renounce their commitment to Christ, but to return to the sacrifices and rituals of the old covenant. They were inclined to go back to what is known as Judaism. And for the writer, such defection was most serious. Because it represented among other things, a falling away from the Lord, from the living God, as he puts it. It signaled unbelief, disobedience, and rebellion against God, thus inviting the judgment of God. We see that in chapter 3, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 7, as well as chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And so throughout the epistle, the writer does at least three things. He does at least three things, these three main things. Number one, he issues to them throughout the book a series of warnings aimed at dissuading them from returning to 
the old covenant. Two, in an encouraging way, he urges them to patiently persevere in their faith in Christ, laying hold, as he puts it, of the hope that is set before them. In fact, as we saw last week, he called their attention to Abraham as a fine example of what it means to patiently take hold of the promises of God, believing in the trustworthiness of God. And so Abraham is held up before them as one who did it, and hence they too can do it by God's grace. And the third thing the writer does throughout the epistle, he holds up before them the Lord Jesus Christ as the fulfillment, as the perfect realization of the entire sacrificial system of the Mosaic law. And in so doing, he calls your attention to Christ, who is not simply a priest, or a high priest for that matter, but Christ, our great high priest. Because as we said some time ago, all the priests of the Old Testament None of them, of all of them, none of them had this title, great high priest. Yes, they were priests. Yes, there were high priests, but never anyone was referred to as a great high priest. Jesus Christ had that distinction. He has that distinction, in fact, whereby he is our great high priest. And this is by large, by large, the predominant theme of the epistle to the Hebrews, if we could find or select one overarching defining theme that recurs throughout the book of Hebrews, it would be this, the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, chapters 1, 2, and we see this chapter and previous chapters, chapters 4, 5, all the way to chapter 10, these chapters are all about the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus For example, we see in chapter 1, verse 3, that in terms of his priestly accomplishment, Christ did something which the Old Testament Leviticus priests did not do, they could not have done, and it was this, that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No priest sat. The Word of God says that daily they were standing in the tabernacle offering up sacrifices. Of, of all the pieces of furniture you would find in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the tabernacle, listen, there was no chair, no seat. Why? Because they had to be standing daily. They never had time to sit. In chapter 2, verse 17, Christ is presented there by the writer of the Hebrews as a merciful and faithful high priest. To those who are Partakers of the heavenly calling, the encouragement is given in chapter 3, verse 1, to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. In chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, the writer challenges his readers to hold fast their confession on the grounds, on what grounds? Here's what he says, on the grounds that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The writer says there how that is a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Chapter 5, verses 4 through 10, chapter 5, verses 4 to 10 show that 
Compared to the Aaronic priesthood, Christ's priesthood stands superior as he, the Son of God, has been designated by God, designated by divine appointment, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now you'll recall that just as a writer made mention of Melchizedek back in chapter 5 verse 10, just at that point he mentioned Melchizedek, he immediately told his readers in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says this, of whom we have much to say, but you cannot bear it. It's hard to explain because you are dull of hearing. Now I'll tell you this morning, I have a lot to say about Melchizedek, not because necessarily you are dull of hearing, why we won't be able to finish it. But listen, it's long. The writer of the Hebrews could not go on because his readers were dull. And instead, what he did, you recall, he digressed from Melchizedek and he went into a lengthy discussion concerning their spiritual condition, how that they were on the verge, as he saw it, they were on the verge of falling away. And it is now here in chapter 7 that he resumes what will turn out to be a lengthy discussion, an extended discussion of the priesthood of this Melchizedek. And so he begins, verses 1 and 2, for this Melchizedek. So he's beginning now to enter his discussion about Melchizedek, whom he had postponed. That discussion of Melchizedek he had postponed earlier. He says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. This is, in fact, a condensed account of the narrative we have in Genesis 14, the background of which is as follows. Four confederate kings launched a war against five kings around the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. This king, which led the coalition force, Kedar Leomar, came against five kings in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, sometime after Abraham's nephew, Lot, had separated from him for the land of Sodom. You remember the account. Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the well-watered plains of Jordan. He went there. And not long after, there was this situation where they were invading enemy kings. Enemy kings who invaded that territory, and they carried off the people, plundered their goods. They took as well, Lot. It was on hearing this, we're told that Abraham deployed 318 of his trained men to go after these kings and rescue Lot. And not only did they defeat the four invading kings, but they recovered the stolen properties as well as the captives, including Lot. And then it was on his return from this battle that Abraham, we're told, there in Genesis 14, was met by the, the priest king Melchizedek. Melchizedek, you'll remember, the Bible tells us there, he brought forth bread 
and wine, and he blessed Abraham in the name of God Most High for having given Abraham victory over his enemies. As we venture to consider Melchizedek this morning, the question will be asked, why do a study of Melchizedek? Why? Because for the writer of Hebrews, a knowledge of Melchizedek will provide for us an appreciation of the superior priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is that important to the discussion of the writer that it is worth our studying this morning. And the arguments he develops in this chapter are all geared toward encouraging his doubting, struggling readers to look completely to Christ, their high priestly redeemer, and not return to the imperfect, rudimentary system of the Mosaic law. You can see how this makes sense because, listen, Melchizedek, the writer is going to point out, is greater than the Aaronic priests. And furthermore, our Lord Jesus stands in the tradition. He stands after the order of this particular king known as Melchizedek. Now, from this passage this morning, verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews 7, there are two major questions we'll answer. The first question concerns the identity of Melchizedek, the identity of Melchizedek. And then secondly, we'll consider the importance of Melchizedek. So let's consider, first of all, the identity of Melchizedek. Who was this man, Melchizedek? And the question is worth asking because here it was, as you read the narrative in Genesis chapter 14, this priest king comes out of nowhere, no record was, of, was there of him before. He just simply comes out of nowhere. He meets Abraham with bread and wine. He blesses him and then vanishes, so to speak. Who was this Melchizedek? There are at least three views as to who he was. Various Views have been advanced, but there are, there are at least three major views. We don't have time to go into all of them, so we'll just choose three. Some ancient rabbinic Jews identify him with Shem, Noah's son. Some say Enoch, but more often they, he's identified with Shem. The problem with this view is that it contradicts verse 3 of our text, Hebrews 7 and verse 3, which says that he was without genealogy. In addition, it would mean that, as one writer notes, Abraham would have been living too many years after the flood for Shem to be still living, even if he did live to 600 years of age. Second, there's a suggestion that Melchizedek was a Christophany. That is to say, when we talk about a Christophany, we are talking about an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. For example, in Genesis chapter 18, we have a Christophany. Sometimes reference is made to a theophany, appearance of God. Appearance, Christophany, appearance of, of the pre-incarnate Christ. But the, the view here is that what we have in this person or personage, this figure, 
known as Melchizedek, who appears virtually out of nowhere, to Abraham was a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And of course, this view is based on the description that's given in verse 3 of our text, which says that he, was, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. However, there are at least two problems with this view that Melchizedek was a Christophany. The first is that he was historically located in Salem as a king, Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, which would make him a normal human. We never see, this is something we must know, when we talk about Christophany or Theophany, we never see a person who comes as a Christophany or Theophany, or a person who comes as a Christophany or Theophany, located in some place. This Melchizedek was located in a place called Salem, where he was king. Then the second argument against the Christophany view is that verse 3, if you look at verse 3, verse 3 does not say that Melchizedek was the son of God. Rather, it says specifically that he resembles the son of God. So this brings us to what appears to be, I would say, the most reasonable view. And it's that Melchizedek was an actual historical person who was merely a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this finds support not only in the statement here, in verse 3, in which a writer says that he resembles the Son of God, but also in Psalm 110 verse 4, where the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, is declared a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as regards his known identity, so we, we're talking about now what we do know of this Melchizedek. Genesis 14 tells us, first of all, Genesis 14 verse 8 states, first of all, that he was a king. In particular, he was a king of Salem. So that's the first thing we know of him. He was a king. He was a man of royalty. He ruled in Salem which we'll talk about a little later on. And secondly, notice what was said of him, both in Genesis 14 and here in our text, Hebrews chapter 7, he was priest of God most high. And being both priest and king, he was undoubtedly a true picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who combined in himself the offices of not only priest and king, but of prophet. Now, this is amazing, and this is marvelous, because if you know your Old Testament history, you'll know this, that in ancient Israel, it was possible for a king to function as a prophet. For example, David. David was a king, and we know David was a prophet, not only because his many psalms, speak prophetically of Christ, for example, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, but even the Apostle Peter says of him in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, that he was a prophet. David as king was a prophet. It was possible for a prophet to function as a priest, 
And who comes to mind? Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, but Samuel also carried out a priestly function. But here's the point. There was no individual, absolutely no individual in ancient Israel who combined all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. That distinction is reserved for none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as our prophet, he communicates to us most, most perfectly the word of God. The word of God expressly suggests that, says that in Hebrews chapter 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through his Son. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I, beloved, have what we would call the ultimate definitive expression of the revelation of God. He it is who communicates to us most perfectly the word of God. And what you, we have here, my friends, in our Bibles this morning, we have here the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. As our priest, he cleanses us, he purges us of our sins and mediates for us before the throne of God. That's what he's presently doing. If any man should sin, we are having an advocate. The Apostle John says, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is presently in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me. He's our prophet. He communicates to us. Most perfectly, the word of God, as our priest, he cleanses us and purges us of our sins, mediating for us, mediating for us before the throne of God. And then as our king, he commands us, he leads us in the way of righteousness. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Celebrating these offices of Christ, the songwriter beckons, praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer, heavenly portals, loud with Hosanna's ring. He says this, Jesus, Savior, reigneth forever and ever. Crown him, crown him, prophet and priest and king. That's who we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what makes him a great Savior. That's what makes him an all-sufficient Savior. His being prophet, his being priest, his being king for us. Well, the interesting thing to note, what, what is said here of Melchizedek, namely that he was a priest of God most high, what is most interesting about that is that notwithstanding his living in Salem, and where was Salem? Salem was somewhere there in Canaan. And Canaanites, of course, you know, were notoriously wicked. They were pagan. They were ungodly. And yet here we find in the word of God a man, a priest king, who was a worshiper and servant of the one true and living God. In fact, it's not without purpose that scripture specifically tells us. It cites the fact that he was priest of God most high. You say, what's significant about that expression, priest of God most high? Because the Canaanites, the Amorites, were, among, were, were known for their numerous false gods. That was a land of gross idolatry. False religions abounded. In fact, false religions and practices which promoted dark, barbaric, immoral ways of living. Talk about child sacrifice. Talk about bestiality. Talk about homosexuality and so on and so forth. 
Those were the kinds of activities, that was the kind of society in which Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. And please note, this was long before God had established his chosen covenant people, Israel. Here was a pagan king in the midst of a pagan people worshipping, serving the Most High God, the one true and living God. The fact was, he was a king who was devoted to the worship and service of God. Melchizedek was living in an age where idolatry was rampant so much so that even Abraham's ancestor, you'll recall, Abraham's ancestor, Joshua 24 verse 15, tells us that his ancestors were idol worshippers. Melchizedek was priest of God, most high in Sodom and Gomorrah, what with all the gross wickedness and immoralities of that place. He lived for God, he served God in his capacity as a priest in days of rank idolatry, in days when according to Genesis chapter 15 verse 16, the iniquity of the Amorites was filling. Rising to the brim is the picture there. Those were days, as we said, when children are being sacrificed to false gods. Yet Melchizedek recognized the revered God as God most high. Imagine that. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul says this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are gods many and lords many, yet for us... There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Listen, if there was one man for whom this was true by way of conviction, it was this man, Melchizedek. At a time when the majority of the world were walking contrary to God, were living in an ungodly condition before God, in a day when people hated God, in a a day when people, my friend, wallowed in immorality, here was Melchizedek, a priest of the true and living God, right in the midst of pagan idolatry. My friends, what's the lesson here for us? It is this, that however evil and corrupt our days might be, however immoral and wicked and horrible our days might be, listen, God will always preserve a light and witness for his name. We look at our time today and we see more and more. There's defection from the true God. There's defection from the gospel. People, my friends, are turning away from God. People, my friends, are wallowing in their sins, gloating in their sins. And here's the truth. However dark the days might come. And let me say this, it's going to get worse. It's going to get darker and darker. How do we know that? Because the word of God says that for evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. It's going to get more, more, more serious. And yet here's a truth presented for us that however perverse and ungodly the day might be, the age might be, God will raise up a faithful remnant who will remain true to him, who will serve him, who will live for him, who will live as salt and light in this evil, perverse, corrupt world. That's how we find encouragement. Right here in this man, 
Melchizedek. And we can most surely trust him for that. So we'll talk about the identity of Melchizedek. Let's consider secondly the importance of Melchizedek. The importance of Melchizedek. And he's mentioned just a few times in scripture. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. He's mentioned in Psalm 110. He's mentioned a few times here in the book of Hebrews. And that's it. And yet, here in our text, Melchizedek is presented as a figure of immense importance. Immense importance. Clearly for the writer, as we look at his extended discussion, Melchizedek was a figure of great significance. Here in verses 2 through 10, he goes into extensive argumentation, extensive discussion to establish the importance of Melchizedek. How important is Melchizedek? First of all, the writer establishes the importance of Melchizedek in terms of his person, in terms of his person. Look at verse 2b. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. For us to appreciate what the writer says here, we have to understand that in the ancient Near East, that is in the world of Abraham's day, the name of an individual was more than simply an arbitrary assignment. Names were not given. For example, parents didn't give their children names just because they liked the name. Whereas today, names are for the most part arbitrarily assigned to an individual, given out of sheer personal preference. In the ancient Near East, a name, one's name, was often related to some significant event or to some trait that that person exhibited or was expected to exhibit. Why was Samuel named? Because Hannah asked him of the Lord. That's what Samuel means, ask of the Lord. Why was Benjamin given the name? He was given because he was born in childbirth. His father named him son of my sorrows because he lost his wife. His mother died in childbirth. And that was why sometimes at critical junctures, at crucial points in a person's life, their name would be changed. Remember, for example, Jacob. Jacob, trickster, God met him there at Peniel. God dealt with him that night. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord. That was a theophany. And at the end of it, God said, listen, your name shall no more be called Jacob. No longer will you be a trickster. <laughs> but you'll be called Israel. Because as a prince with God, you have prevailed. Israel, prince with God. It is against this backdrop that we are to understand what the writer is saying here in verse 2. The writer looks at his name and he says, Melchizedek, well, Mel, Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Sedek, righteous or righteousness. And he says, ah, oh, there it is, he is king of 
righteousness. By the way, let me say here, you and I must not read our Bibles like that. There's a lot of Bible reading like that today where people look at names and they try to cipher out and they say, well, what it, what it means is this and that. No, no, no. We are not at liberty to do that. Here's why the writer of the Hebrews could do that because he, you see, was writing under divine inspiration. And he uses a method of hermeneutics here whereby he takes the name of the person and he says, aha, there you go, he's Melchizedek, Melech king, Tzedek righteous. Yes, he is a king of righteousness. Again, this is remarkable given the fact that as we said earlier, he was a priest of God most high in a society that was wicked, in a society that was corrupt, a society that was so far removed from that, was pure, that which was pure and right and true. He was truly a righteous king. Second, the writer to the Hebrews establishes the importance of Melchizedek, not only in terms of his person, but in terms of his position. He says there in the sea part of verse 2, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. The parallelism of Psalm 76 verse 2, where it is said that God's abode has been established in Salem and his dwelling place in Zion, strongly indicates here a reference to what was later known as the city of Jerusalem. Of course, Salem, from the Hebrew word shalom, means peace, explains why the writer says of Melchizedek that he is also king of peace. King of righteousness. Imagine that. King, here's a man. The writer establishes, here was a man, he was king of righteousness. Here was a man, he was king of peace, this Melchizedek. And beloved, this is significant because with these designations, Melchizedek, Melchizedek stands as a real type of the Lord Jesus who, of all others, above all others, is the bona fide king of righteousness and king of peace. This is most remarkable. It's the most remarkable and comforting truth, particularly for this time in which we are living, this time of history, this time in which you and I are living, polarized as it is politically and socially, our society today is beset with turmoil and tension. We see it, we feel it, we know it. This is an age, my friends, of hate. This is an age of rage. This is an age of intolerance one toward another. These are days when peace is lacking. If peace is lacking in society, then it's lacking even more so in the heart as people try to numb themselves with all kinds of palliatives. Many today turn to substances, some turn to sex, to spirituality, to meet their, some turn to their inner self to attempt to find peace, but sadly, peace eludes them. And why does it elude them? It eludes them, you see, because the things to which they turn for peace, 
the things to which they turn for inner rest, for inner satisfaction, are more psychological escape techniques, which in their very nature do not fix the problem, but rather mask the problem. As one man says, the problem with the escape technique is that it, in it that you know is that reality always awaits your return. People go to the bottle, they go to sex, they go to this, they go to that, and as soon as it wears off, they're back to square one. No peace. And then we think of the lack of peace throughout the world as we see nations warring against one another. We see nations in conflicts with one another. And many, many naively imagine that if nations would only come together, would only sit down and negotiate, would compromise, would strike a deal, would exercise diplomacy, then the problem of war would be resolved. Needless to say, do I have to tell you that as history demonstrates time and again, diplomacy, compromise, these things are no necessary guarantee that people, that nations will be at peace one with another. We know the reality of broken treaties. We have seen it time and again. The reason for that is simply this. Because just as it is in the personal and societal realm, beloved, listen, true peace can never, can never, can never be realized apart from righteousness. Never. Can never be achieved apart from righteousness. In God's scheme of things, listen, there can be no peace with God, no peace with one another, no peace with oneself, until there's first of all peace with God and the establishment of righteousness. The point is one must first of all be right with God before one can enjoy peace with God and the peace of God. We have today cries for justice. And by the way, in, in scripture, justice, the word tzedek, justice, is synonymous with righteousness. People are clamoring for justice today. They want this justice. They want that justice. They talk about all the injustices in the world. But here's the point, my friend. True justice, true righteousness will never, never come apart from righteousness. Listen to Isaiah 32, 16 and 17. God envisions a time, God speaks of a time when, he says, justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the field and the effect of righteousness will be what? Peace and the result of righteousness, quietness forever. Why is there no peace in the Middle East? Because there's a lack of righteousness. Why is there no peace in the heart? Because there's lack of righteousness. The absence of the righteousness of God. We read in Isaiah 57 verse 21, There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. Psalm 85 verse 10 declares, Here's what Psalm 85 10 says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The question is, where did this reconciling kiss between peace and righteousness occur? Yes, you got it right. It was at the cross. It was at the cross of Calvary, beloved, as the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, hung there atoning for your sins and mine. 
It was there on the cross that the justice, the holy justice and wrath of God was satisfied. And in consequence of the satisfaction of God's righteousness, of God's justice, righteousness and peace become a reality in the hearts of men, in the hearts of people as they relate one to another and to God. This is precisely what our Lord Jesus could say in John chapter 14, verse 27. Like, on, unlike any other, our Lord Jesus could declare, my peace I give you. And this, you see, explains why the Levitical priesthood, why the Aaronic system with all its elaborate rituals and sacrifices could never, could never, they were utterly inadequate to give peace to the conscience of people who brought those sacrifices. Because every year they brought those sacrifices, there was what? A remembrance of sin. Those people, my friends, were reminded of the guilt of sin. And it is only Jesus Christ, our high priest, who by his shed blood on the cross of Calvary, secured for us peace with God and the righteousness of God. As our great high priest, the prototype of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and peace, the Lord Jesus came and preached peace to us, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17. Praise God, beloved, not only is he himself our peace, Ephesians 2 verse 14, but he's our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. Which means at the end of the day, and I close, only in him can you and I, only in him can you and I find true and lasting peace. Only in him can we find true righteousness, the righteousness of God that puts us in right stead with God. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, listen, our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the Aaronic priest, the Levitical priest. Why? Because he stands in the tradition of Melchizedek. In fact, he surpasses Melchizedek as king of righteousness and king of peace. Would you know peace today? Then you need Christ. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Jesus Christ, the heavenly lamb, the songwriter says, and you must trust him. You are saved. You must keep on trusting him, looking away from yourself in order to find true peace of heart and mind. May God bless these words to our hearts. For his name's sake, amen.